Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm groovy. Ooh, I love groovy. Yeah, I thought I'd change it up from fabulous. Yeah. I thought today I'd be groovy. Groovy is a good word. I am. Groovy is a good word. You know, I used to laugh about it because it sounds so dorky, but we, we reclaimed it in the 90s and I'm glad we did. Yeah, I love it. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. We have turkeys that are back. (gasps) Yeah, they've come back to the yard. They're so cute. And boy, let me tell you what, those boys are dancing around. Their chests are all puffed up. Their tails are all fanned out. So we watched that little mating dance this morning, which was pretty fun. Aww. Yeah. That sounds so cool and sweet and like romantic in that traditional sense of being idyllic and we had a possum wandering around our yard earlier, which makes me a little worried because I thought they were nocturnal. Yeah. I guess I have to solve, solve, the, solve the possum issue <laughs> later. I, I just don't want it to be sad. No sad possums. No sad possums. So the turkeys presenting themselves was cool because, as you know, this morning at 2.37 a.m., we passed into the vernal equinox, which marks the beginning of spring. Yay! The light has triumphed over the darkness. It has. And in our last two episodes, we've talked about two holidays that had specific reference to those triumphs. One was Nehru's, which is the Persian New Year, and Mm -hmm. Passover, the commemoration and reenactment of the exodus of the Jewish community out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. And our next spring holiday is Easter which is the Christian celebration of Christ rising from the dead. And again, we see that battle between light versus dark, good versus evil, and life Mm -hmm. versus death in this instance. And one of the most prevalent food symbols of Easter is the egg, which, as you know, was also part of the Noru's celebration and Passover. So I thought maybe we could talk about this exceptional food. I love it. And how it became so symbolic, Mm. especially in spring celebrations and creation stories. And also, why did we start eating eggs and how they have become such an important part of so many diets? As we've mentioned, egg is a really powerful symbol of rebirth, resurrection, life, fertility. That cracking of the shell to reveal that new life was magical to our early ancestors. What was most familiar to them was this mammalian birth. So this animal emerging from this hard shell, it was almost miraculous. Mm. And the fact that you can find birds on every continent really helps to explain why this symbol crosses so many cultures. The egg plays this really significant role in creation stories. Brahma, the Hindu creator god, sprang from a golden egg. Kronos, who is the Greek personification of time, brought forth an egg that the world's creator emerged from. 
And in Australia, there's an Aboriginal tribe that believes that they are descendants of the emu. And because of this, eating emu eggs is forbidden. There's stories of eggs being thrown into the sky and starting on fire to become the sun. The yolk specifically catching fire and becoming the sun. The Greeks and the Romans both place eggs or nests with eggs in them in tombs as a sign of life after death. And you mentioned specifically in our Passover episode, the Jewish mourners traditionally eat eggs after a funeral to signify loss as well as the circle of life. And for Christians, decorated eggs symbolize Christ's triumph over death by breaking through that sealed tomb. It's interesting to think about eating eggs when we talk about these origin stories. We've talked about this in some of our earlier episodes, the curry episode the New Year's episode, the Super Bowl episode, that concept of eating something to impart a specific quality on or to the eater. People have been eating eggs for almost six million years. And one of my sources stated that the reason that we eat eggs and that our ancestors ate eggs is because they don't fight back. <laughs> right? I mean, Sorry, they're actually... That's a very good point. It is. I thought, I giggled too. I'm like, that is it's, such a good point. It's, it's totally true. It is. They're pretty easy to find, right? You find a nest and you climb a tree or some birds are ground layers. So you find a nest on the ground and you gather those eggs from the nest. And what they found is even after taking those eggs, the birds would continue to lay eggs. So there wasn't this scarcity. They were very easy to come by. So you're going to get nutrition and actually a handy carrying vessel. That's exactly right. They were easy to carry. They were full of protein and they were Mm -hmm. easy to find. It's funny. I never really thought of it that way. But yeah, the idea that they're actually probably one of the easiest foods to procure. Yeah. They don't fight back. They don't fight back. And then after that gathering, we started to domesticate. And I think that you found some really interesting facts about domesticating chickens. I did, but I've barely cracked the surface. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love being a good pun. Um, So... You know, through this, I really focused my attention on fowl or avian eggs. Mm. What I mean by that is those eggs that are laid by chickens, quail, pheasants, ducks, geese, turkeys, emu, and ostriches. Those tend to be the eggs that we have some kind of history consuming. There are others, pigeon, swallow. I'm not giving you an exhaustive list here, but I am differentiating from other edible eggs like caviar, escamole, ant eggs, a delicacy in central Mexico. Interesting. We really need to do an episode on escamole because it's actually really fascinating. Okay, cool. Um, in row. And, and I'm also, when I talk about birds, I'm talking about chickens <laughs> because they are the most broadly, globally domesticated bird that we have domesticated both as pets for meat and then obviously their egg production. So I found that it was actually really challenging to definitively map the origin of the domesticated chicken. Remember, too, that these are basically tiny dinosaurs. And so what we're talking about is an an animal that spans, as you've said, millions of years. I mean, this is it's almost impossible to trace the origin of the chicken. There are several jungle fowls from northeast India, southwest China and the Philippines that have contributed their DNA to the modern chicken. There is at this point due to DNA research. No doubt that Gallus, or the red jungle fowl, 
is a clear chicken ancestor. And this was something that was theorized by Charles Darwin to be the case. And it turned out to be true. Way to go, Charles. There is a complete genomic mapping of the chicken in 2004 that really has revealed two major genetic modifications over time. One that have resulted in the subbreeds that we think of today as the chicken, known as layers, those that are really great at egg production, and then those that are broilers, or they tend to gather mass and be particularly delicious to eat. This reminded me so much of our episode on potatoes, because what we're looking at is over time, the species has diverted and gone in different directions where you had waxy potatoes versus starchy potatoes. You've got egg laying chickens versus good for meat chickens. And it just goes back to illustrate just the diversity of life and how things just shift over time. This is another form of genetically modified food, both from human intervention, but then just natural selection. So I looked a little bit more into layers and layers have a mutation to a thyroid stimulating hormone receptor gene that correlates reproduction with day length or light. So basically, chickens that suppress that gene are better layers. They lay eggs faster. They have less downtime between laying. So without that gene, layers lay eggs year-round. They don't follow the cycle of light and dark. This breed just goes year-round. And those include white leghorn hybrids, Plymouth barred rocks, Rhode Island reds, blue Andalusians, and Easter eggers. They produce multicolored pastel colored eggs. Evidence of domesticated chickens in antiquity is basically found everywhere. But what I found interesting was that the Egyptians are credited with developing artificial incubation systems consisting of vast complexes made up of hundreds of large chambers connected to a series of corridors and vents that allowed attendants to basically regulate heat from fires fueled by straw and camel dung, and then they would fan the hot air through the vents to incubate eggs. The keepers of the eggs had these techniques and they had this knowledge, but it was not widely known. It was a, almost like a magical science. I just thought it was really interesting the effort that must have gone into figuring out what temperature to keep the chickens and how you did that without a thermometer, but also that the eggs needed to be turned, mm -hmm. otherwise they became malformed. This is a burgeoning science happening here that is dependent on this very fragile thing. Here are a few points about egg qualities that I found that I thought were interesting. The nutritional quality of the egg is pretty reliant on the diet of the hen. Corn and soy are really common diets for battery chickens. That's chickens raised in factory conditions. This corn and soy diet is basically for a chicken akin to having a hamburger and a chocolate shake diet. Like you're going to survive, but you're not going to have the best of nutrition and you're probably going to need to be supplemented with vitamins and all kinds of things in order to really live a quality of life. By contrast, cage-free hens have access to greens, to insects and by virtue of having free range generally should have access to all the nutrition that they need. All hens need a well-balanced diet, but laying hens in particular need more calcium in order to properly form eggshells. What I found on chicken forums that was really fun and shocking is that chickens are omnivores. So obviously they need to eat grains and vegetables but they also need meat. And it's odd to think of this little bird, especially if you're talking about a chicken, gnawing on a moose bone, but they need the protein too. Folks measure egg quality by the color of the yolks. Mm -hmm. So orange and red yolks 
particularly those from cage-free hens, are usually a pretty good marker of good, well-rounded nutrition. However, I discovered that there are plenty of hacks to orange up yolks, including feeding the chicken a diet heavy in beta carotene or marigold petals. And that can yield really bright orange yolks, but there's no discernible nutritional benefit from that. So sadly, I have to say, beware your bright orange egg yolk might be marigold related. You're effectively dyeing your eggs from the inside out. Focusing a little bit more particularly on history in North America, some archaeologists believe that chickens were first introduced to North America by Polynesians who reached the Pacific coast of South America a century or so before the voyages of Columbus. So when Europeans came to North American shores, they actually found a land full of all kinds of fowl, lots of turkey, lots of ducks, geese, and of course chickens. One bit of history that I always thought was really cool was that Benjamin Franklin had wanted the turkey to be the national bird of the United States. They were plenty abundant, but they were considered to not have quite a noble of a character as the American bald eagle, and he lost. Chickens actually played a pretty minor role in the American diet and economy compared to cattle and hogs. Most egg production came from farm flocks of less than 400 hens. Under normal conditions, a healthy hen lays up to 250 eggs per year. They only lay one egg per 24 to 26 hours, and they do take time off from laying. There's a season of molting where they will release feathers and grow new ones, and during that time, they really don't focus on laying. So if you had a brood of, say, 12 hens, you're probably yielding somewhere around 80 eggs a week. By the early 1960s, particularly in the United States and North America, improved technology and the development of sophisticated mechanical equipment was responsible for a shift from smaller farm flocks to larger commercial operations that number like 100,000 to over a million laying eggs. And that improved technology includes things like formulated feeds that promote laying, as well as environmental conditions like extended lighting. I'm about to get really technical. Per capita consumption is the total egg production divided by the total population. According to the Agricultural Marketing Resource Center, the high point for per capita egg consumption in the United States was 402 eggs in 1945, or the annual efforts of 1.75 hens per person. After 1945, per capita consumption dropped to 389 eggs per person in 1950 and reached its lowest point in 1995, 232 eggs per person. Pretty significant drop. A lot of this is very broadly attributed to lifestyle changes and health concerns, which I happen to remember anecdotally being things like cholesterol, farm conditions. The description of why egg consumption has dropped is very broad. What do you think it might be, Leigh? I think a big part of it was dietary. What was happening is that we were associating the cholesterol that was in the eggs with high cholesterol and heart disease in humans. There was this big push against the egg not to consume it. And since then, we have certainly understood the egg a little bit more. But the egg industry, especially here in the United States, had to do some pretty interesting campaigns to bring the egg back. And there were a lot of campaigns that really did a lot of harm to the egg. That's true. So I'll tell you a little bit about what we did, certainly in the United States, and I'll touch on some other places around the world to get people reinterested in the egg and to break that taboo about the cholesterol. I think both of us remember the American Egg Board's incredible edible egg marketing campaign that started in 1976. This included television and radio spots, advertorials, and newspaper ads. 
And I found this 1976 New York Times article about the campaign itself. I'm going to quote a bit. Quote, the basic idea is to present eggs in the many ways they can be used in the home, whether for meals, snacks, entertaining, or whatever, said Richard L. Kath, president of the Egg Board. Each of the 30-second television commercials show vignettes of typical families eating eggs under various circumstances. Similarly, the one-minute radio commercials have jingles in which characters sing about the benefits of eating eggs at different times of the day. The newspaper ads are scheduled to run prior to the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays, promoting eggs not as a substitute for turkeys and cranberry sauce, but as a complimentary item. And this might be why most of us remember eating deviled eggs. Again, I'm quoting Mr. Kath. Our research shows that housewives feel at a loss when they don't have eggs, so we're going to keep reminding them to keep enough on hand. The aim of the new ads is obviously to reverse the decline in per capita egg consumption, which had fallen to 292 last year, from 389 in 1950. Egg dishes are particularly appealing to the consumer considering the present high cost of living level, he noted. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I don't remember if it was specifically about this campaign, is that they did give you one egg costs X and a piece of meat costs Y. So there was this comparison about how economical it was to eat eggs. So we had this 1976, the incredible edible egg, but that's not it for for AEB marketing efforts. They launched an I Love Eggs advertising campaign in 1993 that ran through 97. And in 98, they did another one called If It Ain't Eggs, It Ain't Breakfast, I Love Eggs. Outside the U.S., there are other egg organizations that are meant to promote eggs as nutrition, as food. That includes Australian Eggs, the Egg Marketing Board in England, British Egg Industry Council, and the National Egg Coordination Committee in India. For that group, I found a fabulous commercial from 1986. It shows a woman defending a man, presumably her boyfriend, from a bully with a jingle, eggs are health, eggs are strength, eggs are good, eggs are fun. We've started talking about all the ways that we can recall eggs being used in advertising. And my big recollection of the Incredible Edible Egg campaign is from the early 80s. And it involves an egg being released from jail. So in a twisted flashback to the notion of you are what you eat, basically, the ads were concluding that you were not assuming the cholesterol level of the egg itself when you ate it, that there were other factors that go into play your disposition towards high cholesterol, what other kinds of food you were eating at the time, whether you were exercising. High cholesterol was really a complicated measure of individual bodies rather than just this notion that when you ate a, quote, high cholesterol food, that you were then taking in that cholesterol and just adding it to your own biology. Now, some of the other campaigns that I can think of that utilize egg, and you had mentioned one way that was detrimental, actually, to the egg. This is your Brain on Drugs campaign right. that came out in 1986 and again in 1996. A variation of it came out in 96. The original one that I remember was the frying pan. This is your brain. Egg cracked into the frying pan. This is your brain on drugs. Tagline, any questions? The 96 campaign was a little more violent. Again, frying pan, this is your brain. And I think they smashed a... Again, into the frying pan. This is your brain on heroin because that was the going concern. And so they were being a lot more specific about what drug it was. Mm -hmm. What are your recollections of that? I didn't remember it being detrimental to eggs. I don't think that I necessarily felt that I couldn't eat an egg because of that, but the egg board wasn't a fan. Paul Kai, who was the creative director at the ad agency, Kai, Donna, and Pearlstein, who came up with 
this is your brain on drugs, didn't realize that he would make the American Egg Board unhappy. Sadly for Mr. Kai, turns out it's actually not that hard to anger the American Egg Board. And you know that I love a good food scandal. In 2014, Unilever, which makes the Hellman's and Best Foods brand, filed a lawsuit against Hampton Creek, and they make a vegan mayonnaise called Just Mayo. The basis of the, the lawsuit was that Just Mayo could not be marketed as mayonnaise because it actually contains no eggs. The protein in Just Mayo is substituted with pea protein. The suit was dropped, but under pressure from the FDA, Hampton Creek revised its packaging to clarify that the Just in Just Mayo was being guided by, quote, reason, justice, and fairness, not an indication that the product was just mayonnaise. That makes sense. It sure does. During all this, it was reported that the American Egg Board and its affiliates were actually waging a secret war against vegan mayonnaise. The AEB paid food bloggers to post articles containing the group's talking points regarding eggs. It targeted personalities and websites that had posted articles covering the company in a positive manner, the company being Hampton Creek, and purchased keyword advertising on Google search to display ads on searches for Hampton Creek or its founder, Josh Tetrick. So the idea was like this whole kind of like counter espionage (laughs) thing going on. If you Googled Just Mayo, you saw ads from the American Egg Board about eggs being nutritious and healthy and better for you than non-egg substitutes. Ultimately, the actions of the AEB triggered a federal investigation by the USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service, which found that the AEB, quote, overstepped its congressional mandate. I will give AEB a little bit more credit. They have been a longtime supporter of the White House's annual Easter egg roll and have presented the First Lady with a commemorative egg each year. And those are usually displayed in the presidential libraries. Oh, that's so cool. So we're back to the Easter holiday. We are absolutely back to the Easter holiday and its symbol. It's curious how it's become that universal symbol. Or not curious, considering that absolutely everyone everywhere has encountered an egg. Exactly. (laughs) At some point in their life. Right. It's a great example of why there are so many cultures that view the egg as something that's new and why we use the egg in so much marketing, especially during the springtime, to bring that newness of life. We watched Tempopo last night, which I'm going to be writing up as a little social media perk for everybody. One of the things that was featured in the movie was a rice omelet. And this is my Mm. new obsession. The idea is that you basically create a version of a rolled omelet that when you slice it, the egg drips over your rice. So I'm going to go try to make myself a Japanese rice omelet. That sounds amazing. For Easter, I always do a rolled souffle. Going back to the casseroles episode, (laughs) when I talked about the one casserole that I do love, the one that you can make the night before with the eggs and the bread Mm -hmm. and This one you can make the night before too. So you make the souffle, you bake it in a sheet pan, and then you put provolone cheese, prosciutto, you roll it up, put it back into the oven in the morning, and it's served with Mm -hmm. this parsley sauce, which kind of goes back to Noru's and the Mm -hmm. herbs of spring. That's what I'm going to be working on tonight. Um, Oh, yum. Sounds amazing. Before we have our extravaganza... (laughs) 
<laughs> what can our listeners expect for next week? We are going to be talking about a random item that we find in our pantries. And the reason for this is that we've realized over several episodes that there are a lot of really unique, unusual stories that come out of the food items that we have around us every day. We've talked about golden syrup in the past. We've also talked about baking soda and chili powder in two recipe box roulette episodes. And we talked about cinnamon in our very first food memories episode. So we thought it'd be fun to actually just grab something at random and look into its history. And we really want to invite you to participate in this with us. If you have something in your cupboard or your pantry that you would like us to look into the history of and talk about on the show, reach out to us on Instagram. Yes, do DM us on Instagram or follow us on Instagram. I will be creating a post on a monthly basis at the beginning of each month that asks for your input. And we would love to um, find out what's in your pantry. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. Obviously.